is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Okay, hello again, one and all, and uh, welcome along to Enter Sad Men, episode 31 um, of Enter Sad Men, the podcast in which we are endeavouring to create the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. My name's Steve, and with me to do the show, as ever, are my hard rocking chums, a pair of like-minded saddos by the name of uh, Mark and Richard, whose company I've had the pleasure of over the last few months doing this thing. Um, between us, we're going to pick three albums, as we do on every episode. We're going to review them, we're going to score them, we're going to rank them, and they will fall somewhere in our growing hall of fame, our league table of rock goodness, which incidentally you can read all about on our cracking website, entersadmen.co.uk, where there's bags of stuff to do with the show and what we're up to. So yeah, how are you, chaps? Mark, you well? Yeah, really good. Really had a really good week with the three arms that we've uh, we'll talk about this week. It's been delightful, absolutely delightful. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and to the point where, for the probably only the second time, I'm going to be sorry to see them all go uh, and move on to the next lot. So yeah, really good. Well, really it's, good. It's, no, it, it's, it's, it, well, I'll tell you what, Richard, you well? You looking forward to this? Oh, as ever. Yeah, it's been a lovely, lovely week. Really enjoyed these three we're going to talk about. Yeah, no, it, it's it's been good. So what, what we do, we always do, we randomly select our themes for this gig. Um, we've got a stack of different choices um, logged in on our computer, our randomizer dished up this time round. Playing cards, um, I think, was the theme pretty much. So um, anything, well, it just meant the three was going away and trying to find any band or an album with any kind of link tenuous or otherwise and they're usually tenuous but i don't know this time to in this instance playing cards oh yeah and between the years 1970 to 1995 those are our parameters and before you're thinking which one of these schmucks has chosen the ace of spades that was in a previous episode and had nothing to do with playing cards so that, that was one off the list straight away but Richard, we had we, we we still found plenty to choose from, didn't we? Do you want to uh, talk us through your thought process and what you came up with? Yeah, so I looked at suits and looked at picture cards. And given that we haven't featured them yet, I thought the only choice was to go for Queen. So we haven't featured them at all on a Sad, sad Men episode. Uh, so I thought, well, let's go back to the very beginning. And I've picked their debut album, Queen. Yeah. So where did you take us then, Mark? What did you come up with? Well, a queen always beats a knave. <laughs> I went through, yeah, similar process, looked at all sorts of things. And I just felt like it was it was all just a bit predictable, really. I went sort of, you know, kings, queens, aces. And then one of those kind of eureka moments where I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to do one of my favourite albums of all time. I don't know why I didn't, it took me half an hour to get to that, but I went for Crest of a Knave by Jethro Tull. Very what good. about you? Yeah, that was all right. I got, st- I, got in my head, I got stuck in my head with Diamond Head, and I got stuck in my head Steelheart, and I couldn't get Steelheart out of my head. And I just can't, I kept going back to it and thinking, I don't actually remember liking it that much when I first played their debut album anyway. So I just thought, park it, park it, park it. Then I hit upon the brilliant Crocus and Heart Attack and just remembered at the time that that was the band that was doing good things and they were doing good things. That's the one I've revisited for this. There's your heart and uh, Crocus and Heart Attack. So, yeah, I think that's um, those are three goodies. So I reckon before we get into this, why don't we have a little listen to all three of those and then on the other side of all this, we will kick off with Queen's Queen. Yeah! Yeah! 
Hopefully that's whetted your appetite for what goodies we've got in line for episode 31. So let's get this show rolling. Um, And Richard, Queen's debut album. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes. So 1973, they released this. Yeah, I mean, Queen, I mean, they, they formed really around, around 1970 to 71. I mean, amazingly, a couple of years then before they actually recorded this and um, it, it came about almost fortuitously, but, but more about that in, in, in a minute. So in terms of the details, yeah, so it was um, released in uh, July of 1973. It was recorded in a couple of main blocks, one at the back end of 1971, where I think they did some, some demos and bits and pieces, and then the bulk of it in the, in the second half of 1972. It was recorded at uh, Delane Lee and Trident Studios in London, uh, released on EMI in the UK and Electra in the US. Time-wise, comes in a little under 39 minutes. And um, you might have heard of um, a few of these uh, people that were uh, rec- recorded the album. There were four of them. There was a guy called Freddie Mercury on, uh, on vocals, a guy called uh, Brian, Brian May on, on guitar. Roger Roger Taylor uh, played uh, played some drums, and a guy called John Deacon was on bass. Uh, whatever happened to them? In terms of its uh, charting, I mean, initially it, it it did enter the UK chart, but at, uh, at a, quite a, a lowly place. And it was only I think it was back in, in, into sort of 1975, 76. It then got to 24. This is after Queen Two and then Sheer Heart Attack, and, and they'd really start to to build a, a name for themselves. And eventually it did go gold on both sides of, of the Atlantic and it got to 83 in, in the US chart. So it was a bit of a bit of a slow grower, I think. Uh, and um, it, well, I think, I'm sure we'll discuss um, perhaps why that was. I imagine people who just had never heard anything like it before in their lives, basically. And it took them a while to, uh, to realize that this was actually a very, very special band. In uh, terms of the tracks, there are, well, 10, ten tracks, uh, but, uh, well, a couple of them are quite short. But the order on side one was Keep Yourself Alive, Doing It Right, Great King Rat, and then My Fairy King. And side two, Kicked Off With Liar, and then The Night Comes Down, Modern Times Rock and Roll, Son and Daughter, Jesus, and a short instrumental version of uh, The Seven Seas of Rye. So there it is. I've I've had a ball with this. I mean, it's for me, it's it's, it's another calling card. We, we we had a calling card episode way back in in our first sort of half a dozen episodes, 
but if there was anything that uh, laid it out on the table, what this band were about, it, it was this album. How, how did you find it, guys? It's been an absolute blast. Just so fascinating on so many levels. I'm not going to say I'm not going to sit here and say for one minute I've loved every minute of it, and, and I think that's. But I've kind of really enjoyed listening to it, if, if that makes sense. But a, a lot of it is it's a real curious egg. I mean, in, in short, that's 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 what it is. My initial definition, my summing up definition of this band is it's it's they know they want to go to the top. They kind of know what they want to do, but they just haven't quite yet figured out how they want to express themselves. So what they've done is they've chucked the whole fucking kitchen sink into the studios and just played what they wanted to pretty much. And so you've got this this massive montage, this collage of different colours and sights and scenes and everything, musical styles, musical genres. They're all musically seem quite different in what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. The refinement was down the line. Certainly wasn't on this album. And I just, uh, I picked a couple of quotes out from Wikipedia that just make, I don't think I'm doing Roger Taylor an injustice when the two words I've bookmarked from a quote I read from him on Wikipedia regarding this album were varied and contrived. And I think, yep and yep. And the other one I like from Brian May, he says, we like some of the stuff on it, but we sometimes fell into the trap of over-arrangement. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is really this is almost amateurish, and I love it for its naivety. You wouldn't have known listening to this at the time. This was a band that was going to change the rock world. I don't think. Um, yeah, I've had a ball, absolute ball, Mark. So two two thoughts really. What the first thought I had when I was about halfway through listening to it, I just remember thinking, well, this is a long fucking way from hot space, isn't it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're, they're, this is this is not the band that you know that did that album this is a completely different band and i think the 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 brilliant part of this last week has been finding all of the easter eggs in this album which you kind of you collect and put together and you go okay so bohemian rhapsody comes from that and one vision comes from there and radio gaga i can hear where that journey might have started here. So there, there is the beginnings of the journey everywhere across this album. And you're absolutely right, Steve. I, I can't say that it is flawless because it's certainly not flawless, but it has been absolutely compulsive listening for me all week. And it's an album where every time you listen to it, you hear something new every single time. And there is, I mean, hindsight's brilliant, isn't it? You look back and go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I can see why why they became as big as they did. At the time, if you're buying this album in 1973, you're probably sitting there thinking, what the fuck is this? But it's been, it's it's great. And, and you know, trying to kind of understand it and get your head around it for, for the time that it was released has been really interesting, really interesting. I've loved it, absolutely loved it. It's going to be interesting to see where it ends up in the Hall of Fame, but I agree with what you're saying. This is an album that should be in everybody's collection. I'm not just talking about Heart It on Spotify. I'm talking about uh, amongst those things you own on, in a physical form, this needs to be in there. I think it's a really, really important record in rock and music history. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I would go a bit further than that and say it's the most important record I think we've dealt with in 31 episodes in that sense. Yeah. I think I think this is a really, really important record. It's, you, you're probably never going to play it very often, 
No. But you're absolutely right, Richard. Everyone should own it. I agree. And that also makes the point that, and because I was going to say that in the, you have the same sense of respect and appreciation for, for Shades of Deep Purple or Piper at the Gates of Dawn or Genesis the Revelation. You want to know, you, ha- you have to see the starting point, don't you? You, you need and Led Zeppelin one. You've got to see how it started, where it started, just to kind of understand how on earth that journey got going. Because, yeah. as you say, there's so many hints and whiffs and just sort of sensations that point you in the direction that this band was going to go to. But no way, as you can say, could you could you stand there and say, "Fuck me, I can see that performance at Wembley," you know, from this. You just can't. But um, which shows an awful lot about their maturity going forward and their well, their uniqueness. Yeah. I think they're right. Yeah, I, I I did wonder though, listening to this and you know the fact that it it took a couple of years at least to really get traction. I just think it took that long for people to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> catch yeah. Up. <laughs> okay. Shall we uh, give this one a spin then? What an open aside. One uh, opens with a song that a lot of us are familiar with. Uh, Keep yourself alive. Immediately they start to lay the stage, don't they? The the, the the flange guitar, the picking, the bass and the drums come in. But then Freddie Mercury is quite understated, is it the word? He, he, he starts off gradually on this album with his, his vocals. Uh, it, it starts to build, the harmonies come in, and, and immediately, of course, now we know what we're listening to. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's understated so much as I, I think one thing that he did really well, I think, was to pitch his delivery in a way that allowed the song to breathe. I think that that was, you know, we talked, we've talked in the past, haven't we, about particularly about people like Ian Gillan, where their voice is an instrument. Well, frankly, you know, welcome to the show um, because you, you're never going to hear an instrument quite like this until we do another Queen album. And this is this is a track that would sit on any Queen album happily. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that of all the tracks on this album, this is track one. This is absolutely track one. This is a massive hint of what's to come with those sort of telltale vocal harmonies that, you know, would punctuate their entire careers. It just gallops along. And it's a proper old hard rock track. It gallops along at a nice old rate. Plenty of distortion, ever so messy, (laughs) OTT effects. They're not leaving anything, they're not holding anything back with this track. I mean, it it is a real introduction, isn't it? Because then you get. Sort of a more, more of a little solo than a drum fill from yes. Taylor, yeah. and then and that leads straight into for the first time ever the classic layered harmonied Brian May guitar solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That drum solo was this used to have a massive drum solo in it. Apparently, I never I never saw Queen, never saw Queen, um, but apparently um, up until the early eighties they'd play this, and with, with a really really prolonged drum solo. The only Queen single never to have charted in the UK. Wow. Criminal. We should start a campaign. (laughs) Re-release. Track two is uh, Doing All Right. One of the other things about this album is track by track, and then even within tracks, you haven't a bloody clue where it's going to go next. And so they they follow up that opener with just a beautifully quiet, again, I mean... Freddie Mercury's voice here, up high, just smooth as silk. The, you know, the pianos, the ha- vocal harmonies come in again. And, uh, well, we'll talk about what it does in a minute. But to start with, it's just this, I mean, I think it was almost, I don't know, what, I mean, what 
bands did you get in this? I mean, it was before that, but it almost reminded me a bit bad company ballady, but it's of its time. You know, this is a this is a song that I don't know if you've you two have seen Bohemian Rhapsody, but you get a you do get a bit of a masterclass in in what happened before Queen became Queen. This was a, a song that was part of Brian May's band's previous band called Smile. And it was just a beautiful little folky, I don't know, it's a curio, isn't it? And I don't think when Smile did it, I don't think what you were alluding to, that mad moment that you have in the middle of it, I don't think that existed in that version. But, you know, I, I said, didn't I, when we were talking just, just a moment ago about Keep Yourself Alive, that Mercury knows knew when to, when to deliver and how to deliver a song. And, you know, by all accounts, he tried to deliver this in the same way that Tim Stafford, Smiles lead singer, had delivered it when he was in the band. And amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'd check it out on YouTube, the, the Smile version, and he does. He, he's very he's very faithful to to what t- to how Tim Stafford sung it. And also, you can tell, I mean, therefore, it must have been written in, what, 69, 70, something like that. If it was done by Smile, I'm guessing. It just feels... 60s it feels late 60s it feels childlike and uplifting and um you know but yeah with those some almighty guitar that is coming in down the down the track oh i, I tell you what, i could listen to this all night it's my favorite track off the album i just loved it Ooh. this just conjures up to me it, 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 if you've not seen bohemian rhapsody you just have to i don't care who you are what just you just have to you simply have to this just conjures up to me a view of freddie that i associate with him when they just strip the songs back a bit. You're all dead, all deads. You're Teo Toriatas. You're, you know, you're my best friend. All this sort of stuff, you know. When he just is allowed to set, just put so much emotion into the songs. Like, this wasn't even his song, I know, but beautiful. I just think it's a peerless work, piece of work. No, I agree. And so we move on to track three, which is Great King Rat, written by Freddie Mercury, this one. And... What you were both saying earlier, that the number of bits and pieces in this that became the Lego bricks of so many future Queen songs. And I think it's the first introduction on this album, at least, of their arrangement and throwing so many different styles and sounds into what about six minutes of music. It almost, it's almost a Western rhythm to begin with. Uh, and then these sort of soaring choruses, acoustic break, the percussion. I mean, it, it's where's it going to go next? Um, it's what, what can I say? Just missing a bit of cowbell, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing song. I love this song. I feel slightly uncomfortable that this challenges me more than it probably should. Oxford United, Oxford United used to play a ground called the Manor Ground. And if anyone's been on the Manor Ground at Oxford, they'll know. They don't play there anymore. It was just like this whole sort of arrangement of different stands. It was like they'd ho- they'd held a designed the best stand competition. There'd been about fourteen joint winners, so they just built the whole fucking lot, and it's just an absolute mess. They've moved, and I'm getting that with <laughs> with Great King Rat. It's just like such a waterfall of different ideas and tunes and rhythms and and sensations poured out. And rather than sift through them, they just said, "Oh fuck it." We'll just get on with it. Um, 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 the ideas we've come, yeah, let's let's put them in, let's throw them in. It's almost like a shorter twenty-one twelve. I don't know what I'm marking. 
<laughs> I think I think I'm marking the the bridge here. Versus, I just yeah. think it's I think it's brilliant. I think this is if I was in Queen, if I was John Deacon or Roger Taylor or Brian May in the studio at this point, I'd be going, "This is fucking amazing! <laughs> what have we got here? We've got uh, there's gold in there somewhere. I have yeah. no idea where it is, but yeah. there's gold in there somewhere." Yeah, I can't, and I can't locate it. And I'm listening to it through 2020 years. Uh, would I have located it in '73? No, almost certainly not. I don't know how many times I've listened to it this last week and listening to it again now. One just has to lay back <laughs> and let it happen because <laughs> I, I I still can't remember where it's going to go next. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Love it. It's not my favourite track on the album, but I, I do love this this track. <laughs> the last track on side one is My Fairy King. A couple of things about this track. Firstly, it's allegedly about this invented fantasy world called Rye, where the seven seas are that uh, Freddie Mercury invented, and allegedly uh, is uh, the source of his surname, because obviously Freddie Balsara, as he was when he joined Queen, there was a, a line on this track that says, Mother Mercury, look what they've done to me. And so it goes that with that line, he started calling himself Freddie Mercury, and the whole thing stuck. But in terms of a track, it starts off with, again, the classic Queen harmonies and and the you know, maze guitar backing it all up and, and accenting it. Uh, but again, the, the it's a, yet another journey of discovery, because after a while, it, it then just goes off in a completely different direction. Yeah, it's every it's every bit as weird as 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 its predecessor, isn't it? It's um again incredibly varied. But what what this track has, I think that that rap doesn't is more of those Queen harmonies that I find adorable. It, to that end, it's slightly more acceptable on my ears. But um, <laughs> this is, according to the band, the root of Bohemian Rhapsody. This is where the journey to Bohemian or bow rap, as they call it in the film, this is the this is where that journey starts because, according to Brian May, this then led to essentially allowed them to evolve March of the Black Queen on Queen Two, and which then became, or well, then led to Bohemian Rhapsody later on. And it, I, I found a quote from him where he said, "This is this was the first time we'd really seen Freddie working in his full capacity." He's virtually a self-taught pianist, and he was making vast strides at the time, although we didn't have piano on stage at that point because it would have been impossible to fix up. So in the studio was the first chance Freddie had to do his piano thing, and we actually got that sound of the piano and the guitar working for the first time, which was very exciting. My Fairy King was the first of these sort of epics where there were lots of voice overdubs and harmonies. Freddie got into this, and that led to the March of the Black Queen on the second album, and then Bohemian Rhapsody later on. So, arguably, without this track, you don't have that track. Which was only two years down the line, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, this is this is my track of the album. Interestingly, because I, I absolutely get accept what you said about it. Kind of goes off in different directions. It's slightly less manic than Great King Rap, but yeah, I love. I, I think this is the pick of it, maybe because of the context rather than necessarily the music. 
I love I love the I love the, the, the organized finish after you get into that when Freddie does that beautiful piano bit, which is really haunting. And then, then they bring it all back together for this big finish. Reminds me a little bit of the way Genesis close out musical box, not not necessarily in terms of of music, but in terms of that sort of measured crescendo, which is which hey, listen, it's a fantastic finish to a to a really, really, you know, exciting song. Well Genesis were also masters of this yeah. very orchestral approach, weren't they? Yeah. So side two starts with track five, which is Liar. Well, again, a completely different start with sort of percussion and claps. And I was thinking, oh, is, is this the, the root of We Will Rock You and similar tracks in, in their history? And then, and then launches properly with some you know, massive, massive chords. I mean, this is essentially, as far as I can see, Freddie at the Gates of Heaven. Uh, I mean, it was written by Freddie Mercury uh, a few years earlier in, in well, 1970, before he actually joined the band. Yeah, I mean, it, this is, this gets into being quite a rocker. It's got a very Rolling Stones feel to it, isn't it? Um, especially the first sort of three or four minutes. And the Hammond organ's in there as well, isn't it? I do believe. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I like it a lot. I do. It, it's interesting that um, Brian May swears by it. Queen fans absolutely swear by it to, to the extent... And I checked it out on set list. It's their most, it's their ninth most played song live. And you think about the catalogue they've got to pick from. There's a lot about what this means to them, a band and a, and a, and a fan base. I, I think, though, isn't it? I'm right in saying, I think, that on this album, the one that the Queen fan base absolutely adore is, is Great King Rat, isn't it? Okay, yeah. But, but which hasn't featured in their set, I don't think, for a very, very long time. Yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, Liars, great. It's quite heavy, isn't it? You know, it really takes you by the scruff of the neck and kind of propels you through. Great, great way to start side two. I do I do have a slight issue. It, it is too long. And also, anyone who remembers the REO Speedwagon AOR episode, there's a little gospely bit in here that just drives <laughs> me nuts. <laughs> it's, it's where they go completely off-piste. As were they as they were wont to do from time to time, well, more than from time to time, I get out. <laughs> you and your gospel, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> the other piece that uh, I noticed in this, which I what I wondered about, I'm sure you can overanalyze these things, is is in, in the in the second half. There's there's a that conversational piece of Freddie talking to himself, which again came you know, is, you know, is a big big thing as part of Bohemian Rhapsody. None of this is straightforward, is it? Like, that's the thing. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to know how they, how these songs came together, how they arranged them. They, they were written generally by the you know, in, individuals, weren't they, in pairs? But then it, you just get the impression that something in terms of the arrangement, something magical happened in that studio. Yeah, because, I mean, this is, this is an album that's essentially a collection of demos. Yeah. Isn't it? Really. And I think the, the thing that, I'm, that I was really taken by, I suppose, over the last week as I've sort of read more about the album and how they recorded it is for, for a young band that struggled to get a deal, as they did, they really struggled to get a record deal. They weren't off demanding in the studio. They they weren't going to accept anybody's view of what their sound should be because they rejected quite a lot of, of what um, Roy Thomas Baker was coming up with. Mm. And that was obviously a difficult relationship, particularly between Brian May and him but they were absolutely adamant they knew what they wanted which takes quite a bit of guts doesn't it for a young band that we're not talking Led Zeppelin here we're, we don't have people queuing out the door to sign them and they'd also back they'd also back well they'd either backed themselves or they didn't 
actually, or they hadn't actually written many songs because most of the songs of this are written 1969, 1970, 1971. So either that's all they had or they were so damn confident when they went into the studio that these were the ones, you know, I don't know what followed in terms of songwriting for the next album, you know, how fresh it all was or whether there was more stuff that was conjured up from, you know, previous lives. But, um, yeah, the, 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 these these songs had been established in their own mindset. They knew where they wanted to take them, I think, even though if you listen to it, you still think, could, did they really mean it to go there? Did they really mean it that, that to happen? You know, um, all part of the charm. So track six, second track on side two is The Night Comes Down. Mark was saying a few minutes ago about demos. I mean, this was recorded, I think, early on in 1971, was it, as a, as a demo in Delane Lee Studios. They then re-recorded it, but just didn't like the re-recorded version of so they resorted to that original demo for, for the album, which is yeah. amazing, really. The, the mood is set, I think, by, it feels like, Brian May hitting his... Tapping and banging on his guitar strings, and with the drums and bass. I mean, I, I did. I got a bit of a nighttime feel at the beginning of this to to set the mood. Again, I mean, after Liar, another step down. Well, for a, a little while at least. Yeah, um, I, this is this is as close to lift music as this album gets. As 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 songs on this album is. Um, I'd like that opening. I like that kind of. It's almost like a jazz Spanish kind of battering of that acoustic guitar, isn't it? But it's um, really interesting. Um, and I love the finish of this song. It, it's kind of almost psychedelic and it could go on and on and on. But generally, um, in this crazy patchwork quilt of an album, this is just a bit down table for me. It, it's just, it's quite sweet and gentle, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, th- it is a style that they pursued very successfully, though, in later albums. This sort of very much, particularly on albums like A Day at the Races, Jazz, where they just stripped it back a bit and just let Freddie do his thing. And, yeah, you know, and uh, there's almost bits of it's, it's a hard life in this, aren't there? Yeah. And, and this is this is one of those moments where this is this is all about Freddie, really. Yeah. But I'm listening, but I'm, there's so many points in this song I'm listening to it and I think, oh, I hope he goes there with that, or I hope he does that. And they don't. And it just, uh, yeah, quite- this and the next track are more straight ahead, traditional. Yeah. They more or less the same tracks as opposed to hit you from all angles. Yeah. 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 So track seven is a modern times rock and roll. Well, the, the, the second shortest track, I would, I would suggest the shortest song on the album. And uh, this is uh, sung by Roger Taylor. And it's a, I mean, it's just a straight ahead rock track. I mean, it, uh, probably the the most traditional track on the album by quite a way. Well, it's also the most non-Queen track on the album. I have to admit to feeling quite disappointed when this came on because it, it's there's nothing particularly interesting about this. There's nothing particularly clever about it and there's nothing particularly original about it. So for me, this is the weak point of the album. But yeah, I mean, it's notable only because it's it's Roger Taylor on, you know, on the vocals. And I mean, he can sing, there's no doubt. In fact, some of the most more histrionic and theatrical vocals on this whole album, backing vocals, are down to Roger Taylor. He has got a set of pipes on him, but this does nothing for me, I have to say. Yeah, he's king of the falsetto, isn't he, normally? But um, yeah. I've got nothing to say about this. I just called it a poor man's motorhead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um, embarrassed by the company it's keeping, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So we uh, 
get into track eight, which is son and daughter, which I'll, I'll sum up the beginning as uh, the Bee Gees meet Black Sabbath. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, oh, it yeah. is. Tony Iommi's come to, to town on this. Quite grungy and heavy, isn't it? So who's so who's the real headbanger of the four then? Who 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 is this? Is this Brian Mays? Do we would would you say it was written written by Brian this one? So uh, I think but, I think he's closet metal. But Robert Taylor is the big metalhead. In, in is he? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Taylor likes good old fashioned rock and roll. So and and I think you know there was always there was always a. Quite a lot of, um, I think Roger was Roger Taylor was always pushing for the band to kind of explore the sort of the, the harder edge of of what they do. I mean, I don't think don't think he ever wanted Queen to be a heavy metal band. You know, quite the quite the opposite. But I think he always wanted them to explore that kind of outer perimeter, if you like, of you know the guitars and yeah. the drums. It's almost as if this album didn't have this, so they put it in. I, I just doesn't seem that th- these two tracks together just don't don't cut it for me at all. Following on from modern times rock and roll, but yeah, N- notable only really for not having a guitar solo in it. Yeah, but the invention's gone, and and that's everything that Queen were about, wasn't it? Well, don't worry, Steve, because that's coming in spades in the next track. Oh, ain't it? Yeah, ain't it? Yeah, yeah. I like Son and Daughter. I think it's it deserves its place on, on this album. Yeah, yes, it's a bit more standard, <laughs> let's say. But I, it's a, I, as a track, I think it stands up well. Yeah, so we're back uh, on uh, track nine to what the hell's going on? Uh, it's a Freddie Mercury penned Jesus, which well, I mean, is a song about going down to see Jesus. <laughs> Musically, my goodness, where do you start? Flamenco, there's bits of folk in here, and one of the most amazing vocal performances. This is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful track. I, the first time I heard it, I thought, what the fuck is this? And then the more I've played it, the more I have come to absolutely love it. It's interesting that it kind of bookends the album. I always said Keep Yourself Alive was the was the hint of what was to come. And then at the back end of the album, you've got Jesus, which does exactly the same thing. It's just, this is just such an app. I know we've got a kind of instrumental to come, which is in itself a sort of teaser for future projects, but this is a perfect closing track because it's just, it, this is almost a, and boy, you cannot wait for what we've got next up our sleeves. It's just so big and, and over the top and theatrical and cabaret and um, incredibly and I've deferred to set list. They've not played this live since 1972. So they didn't even play it after the album On the tour, I know. Yeah, you just think this is, um, well, I don't know. I just find it a fascinating piece of work. Back to, uh, with Freddie and his power over the crowd, can you imagine what he oh, yeah. It's <laughs> Hands in the air, everything. Yeah, the, the, the call and response would have been quite interesting, wouldn't yeah. it? But they've knitted it again, haven't they? They've got that congregational stuff and the harmonies and the chords and then some some big hard rock coming out as well. It's yeah. you know, it's 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 a it's a great combination of of, uh, of all their qualities. It's that that staccato kind of punching rhythm that it has to it, which is you don't necessarily want to draw a parallel when you're talking about a song that is actually about going down to see Jesus. But you can almost <laughs> You can almost see the goose stepping to that rhythm. Um, you know, it's really quite militaristic. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and again, with the finish, the, 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 there's the fast element, and then it it comes back to that the the main melody. 
and uh, and then finishes just with a load of vocal harmonies. <laughs> yeah, say Steve, leave you wanting more. Okay, and the album Brilliant. finishes with, as Steve says, a, a minute of uh, presumably like a bit of an amuse-bouche as well to say, right, on the next album, you might be hearing something that sounds like this. <laughs> one minute of the seven seas of right. I think that's a really interesting inclusion on this album because it was a, a work in progress. Freddie Mercury wrote it or was in the process of writing it. I'm just I've I've not been able to find out why. Maybe somebody does know and they can just drop us an email and let us know. Why did he feel that the album needed an unfinished why did he feel compelled? to include an unfinished piece of work on this album. And that's, I find that absolutely fascinating. If they were, if it was all about them and they were producing it themselves, then you'd say, yeah, it's just a vanity project. It's complete vaingloriousness. And we know there's, you know, the great narcissist, you could see it in him. But there were people behind the desks. There was a record company. Did they not say, well, hold tight. Where's that going? <laughs> I know. And that in a microcosm, just the inclusion of that one minute, 10 seconds, yes. says everything about this album. I've absolutely adored it. I've, I've had just such a lot of fun. So your highs and not so highs then, gents? Shall I go first? I mean, let's start with with, with, with the not so high. That for me is um, Modern Times Rock and Roll. I just think it's it's just, it's not it's not a bad song. It's just in the company it's keeping. It, it just seems to be a bit of an afterthought. And given all of the invention and the and the the sort of the, the the flamboyance around it, it just seems a bit dull for me. The Fairy King that would be my my pick of the album. Maybe not just for the music, but also because this is the seed that they planted that grew into. Scaramouche, Scaramouche. And I think, you know, for that reason alone, that's why it, it's my pick. Steve? Yeah, I feel kind of guilty almost, but I'm not going to back away. I, I've, I've marked three of these tracks very averagely, and therefore, because that's what I feel of them. And that's um, Night Comes Down, Modern Times, Rock and Roll, and Son and Daughter. I don't think any of them are particularly outstanding. I just think they're above average. Um, like Mark, probably Modern Times, Rock and Roll of the Week for me. What I love, and I've always loved it, and I still love it now, and when I put it back on again, I've just reminded myself of quite how much I loved it, um, was doing all right, which I just think is, an, is, is just, it's just Queen, in Queen in a nutshell. And, and I could listen to that, and that would be on my, give me, give me a 20-track playlist, and you'd do well to sift Queen's greatest hits down to 20 tracks. That would be one of them, definitely. I'm with both of you in terms of the low, Montana Rock and Roll, and uh, I'm with you, Steve, on on the high. I think Doing All Right is just an amazing piece of music. Okay, so there we go. That's the first of our Leaders of the Pack albums, the debut album by Queen, which is a go out, buy it. You need it in your record collection. Okay, we're going to skip out of the 70s, and uh, we're going to move into the mid-ish 80s for our second album of this episode, and that is Mark with Jethro Tull's Crest of a Knave. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. There's a black tiger joke here, isn't there, somewhere? There is a black tiger joke here somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Behind you. <laughs> okay, so Jethro Tull's Crest of a Knave, the album that is famous possibly for that Grammy moment, um, and we'll come on to that in a minute. This would make my 
top 10 certainly possibly top five albums of all time jethro toll christopher nave released on september the 11th 1987 uh, recorded earlier that year and released through chrysalis it runs to shade under 40 minutes 39 30 and it was recorded in a place that is described on the album cover as recorded just around the corner from the kitchen in the room behind the door which used to be painted white but isn't anymore so christ knows where this was made <laughs> all right i'm just glad it was made the personnel uh, who were performing on this is an interesting lineup uh, if only because of the absence in the former personnel of a drummer um, so Ian Anderson on, and uh, if you've got, just put, get your heads down, get comfortable. We're about to go into Jack and Nor- Noriland. The list of instruments he plays is as long as your arms. So uh, he, Ian Anderson was on vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, additional percussion, keyboards, synclavier, or synclavier um, drum programming on Steel Monkey and Raising Steam. Martin Barr, long-standing member of the band on rhythm, guitar, and backing vocals, and he had a vital role to play in this album, particularly. And then Dave Pegg on bass and acoustic bass. The drums, uh, as you may have guessed from the rundown of Ian Anderson's uh, instrumental responsibilities on the album, were in part down to a drum machine. But where there were real people... They were Doanne or Dwayne Perry on drums and percussion on Farm on the Freeway and Mountain Men, and Jerry Conway on drums percussion on Jumpstart, said she was a dancer, and Budapest, and Rick Sanders played violin on Budapest. It charted in the UK at number 19, spent 10 weeks there, uh, got to 32 in America on the Billboard 200, um, got to number 32 and stayed for 28 uh, 28 weeks went gold in both the UK and the United States, 400,000 and 500,000 sales, respectively. Um, there are only seven tracks on the vinyl version of this album, 10 made it onto the CD version. But the uh, vinyl version, which is the one we're dealing with this evening, ran as follows Side One, Steel Monkey, Farm on the Freeway, Jumped Apart, and Said She Was a Dancer, Flip the Record Over, and You Got Budapest, Mountain Men and Raising Steam. So interesting bits and pieces about the album. Jethro Tull were formed in Luton in December 1967, playing blues rock, and but they soon found through, um, largely through Anderson's uh, flautism, um, a following amongst sort of folk music, and they leveraged that into a sort of progressive rock sound. As I said, they're most famous, this album is most famous really for having won the 1989 Grammy for Get This, Best Hard Rock Heavy Metal Performance or Instrumental, and it beat the fans' favourite, the 1988 uh, release by the little-known Metallica and Justice for All, and also the critics' choice, Nothing Shocking from Jane's Addiction. Lars Ulrich, two years later, on accepting the 1991 Grammy for the Black Album, um, said quite affably, I would personally like to thank Jethro Tull for not releasing an album this year. Um, the album came three years after the Under Wraps album, which was kind of a very, I think, ill-considered sojourn into electronica. Uh, and during the hi- hiatus between Under Wraps and Christopher Nave, Ian Anderson suffered a pretty nasty show- throat infection that forced him to adopt a very different vocal style, which is uh, obvious on this album if you've heard previous albums. Anson was the sole writer on all Jethro Tull releases, for, apart from Under Wraps. 
Um, and although he returned to sole writing GT4, Crest of a Knave, the album is probably really notable for the dominant guitars of Martin Barr and the reduction on the reliance of Anderson's flute, which is an absent, uh, an instrument that was entirely absent from the album's opener, Steel Monkey, um, and didn't, I mean, it featured heavily in parts, but it wasn't as dominant as it had been on, say, uh, all of those albums from the, the 1970s. The first five tracks of this were all released as single. Only Steel Monkey and Budapest charted in the UK at 84 and 55 respectively. Um, but despite the album's critical success, Jethro Tull had not had a single chart in the United States since The Whistler from the album Songs from the Wood in 1977. What I love about this album, apart from anything else, is it's got some absolutely brilliant lyrics, and we'll come on to that as well. So... We did Aqualung in a previous episode, and we liked that. Did we like this, chaps? Yes, we did. Well, I certainly did. I can't, I can't speak for Rich, but I certainly liked it. Let's put that Grammy to bed. That was that was a one-off and a mistake. It was the, the only year they did that Grammy, and it was an embarrassment for the um, for the for the society, wasn't it? It should never have won that award. Let's let's make it abundantly clear. I was looking at some of the albums. If you're comparing albums that were out in '88. Operation Mindcrime, Skyscraper, South of Heaven, So Far, So Good, So What, Quest of a Knave, come on. You know, it was a complete novelty and it was a, it was a stupid gimmick. And it, it, let's face it, it got Jethro Tull on the map. Um, not that they were off it anyway. They've been around for donkey's years. This is what I found interesting about this album is it's, um, if I've, I've read some scathing reviews of Quest of a Knave from diehard Tull fans who haven't left the early 70s. And you have, thank Christ. So you, you, you're a, you're a bigger-hearted soul and an understanding man. They're not. They they load the fact that there's drum boxes and drum machines and keyboards and 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 shit like that going on. And I don't know enough about any of that. All I've heard to really is Aqualung and this. There's 15 years apart, probably about 140 albums. And I'm delighted to have listened to Crest of a Knave, which is a very different album, but the flute don't change. And when you hear the flute, you know you're listening to Jethro Tull. Whatever he's whatever he's wazzed it up to and stuck it alongside and whatever else, it's still a flute. And as we know, it's a heavy metal instrument, because he said so. <laughs> Richard? I remember you introducing me to this album in the mid-90s, Mark, and... Uh, you gave me, I think it was a spare copy of the vinyl, which I've given a really thorough deep clean. <laughs> and it's fine, actually. And it's definitely tell from a storytelling point of view. Some of the stories he weaves on this on this album in these songs, they're just wonderful. I like the musical style. It does, and I do wonder. It, it, it does remind me of, of Dire Straits, not just his more limited vocal singing and in fact he had to drop it an, uh, an octave or two it did make him sound a little bit like Mark Knopfler on a couple of the songs uh, but also the, the the style of the music so I do wonder if given that what Brothers in Arms was Brothers in Arms was 85 but yeah a, a couple of years earlier I, I do wonder if that's what made it more popular anyway I like it still like it a lot I think that's really interesting. I, I, I read that about Dire Straits. I, I think this is as far removed from Dire Straits as it is possible to be. It, for me, in no way is this a rip-off, but there are sufficient things that sound similar. 
I'm with I'm with Richard on that, and I think it's a lot more than sufficient. And again, it's not a criticism because they're not a band. Why would you criticise the fact that he sounds like he sounds like? There's a whole load of dire straits in this. I really think it, and it's not a bad thing. I don't. I think they're two completely different bands. But anyway, let's get on and see where the, where they are. Let's see where the are. <laughs> so so we're going to play a game. Okay, as we go through this, um, you're, you're going to point out the bits where you think it's dire straity. Shall I just point out the ones that aren't? Is that is that easier? Don't be a twang. <laughs> Play nice. Like, right. like, Ian, like Ian, I want to save my voice. Yeah, okay. Are we ready? Okay, so the album starts off with Steel Monkey. And at this point, I've put this on, having kind of been Jethro Tulled from the 1970s. And I'm thinking, fuck me, this is a proper rock album now. You know, proper, proper guitars going on, everything. It's like, where's that band come from? But there's some absolutely lovely lyrical kind of playing around on this. And drum machine or no, I don't care. I don't give a shit about purists and whether they think there should be drum boxes and drum machines and Flavio Clavias and fuck knows what else on it. Don't care. Don't give a toss. For me, this is a proper, proper rock song. I was not expecting this, Mark Norman. I was not expecting this at all. Uh, yeah, like you, I couldn't give a shit either. I did, did, this isn't Jethro Tull in any sort of conventional sense of what I'd come to know them as. And I've always said, and I've always said, I don't, you know, bands do different things and all hail to them and, and you love it when they do. And this is very different and seriously decent. It's got from the fast paced keyboard opening, I mean, bloody helps from the off. You know, we're in a different territory, aren't you? And you can hear the, you know, the Tull purists choking on their yogurt and and they're um, and they're turning the thing off straight away. But um, no, to me, I love it. I actually get quite a bit of Lemmy in here as well. <laughs> I, do, I genuinely do. But I tell you what, I've, I've been drinking a lot recently, so it's um, yeah. So are you are you getting Mr. Kilmer, Richard? No. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm starting to see your. I'm starting to see your opinion about Dire Straits in a completely different light, Steve. Carry on, Richard. I think it's a really good start. I love this song. So for me, what this reminds me of is Afterburner era ZZ Top. Yeah, I get that. Um, but I think in terms of the arrangement and the, and the songwriting and the drive, it's a really good start. And I think. Fair play to them. I think the I think the first track was a bit of a statement saying, "Right, you're about to hear a set of stuff that you're not expecting." Totally agree. That yes, because they could have. There there is some stuff on this album they could have put at the front of it, which would have maybe eased the transition for some yeah, of those. Yeah, hugging your Budapest or something on first set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other the other thing. What's interesting? I don't want to keep going over Aqualung. I just loved it to bits. But Martin Barr, who was who was the guitarist back then as well, he just maybe it was maybe. I mean, everything is to do with sort of technology and and the evolution of the instrument and you know amps and everything. But he just sounds so massive on this album as a guitarist, and he didn't back then. It was all kind of everything was sort of second fiddle to the flute, if that makes sense. And he was um, the guitar was far more constrained and restrained back then. It's a time thing. It's an age thing. I know it is, but Martin Barr's guitar on this. He, He's, he's out on his own now, isn't he? He, he? I know he takes two or three, two or three of these tracks. He, he swears by, takes them with him live, and 
you know, because he could then power his way through them. So I'm, I'm not actually going to talk about track two, which is farm on the freeway. You know, the flute is back without doubt. But Steve, I know you had um, you had trouble getting beyond this one, didn't you? In the same way that I did Telegraph Road on Love Over Gold. I just couldn't get past that either. There's the first reference, um, although I think you've mentioned it already. Oh, mate, I just think this is beautiful. And um, if we know anything about Ian Anderson, it's, as you boys have said before, it's the fact that he can tell stories. I just love this story, and it's so simple. I love the fact that he said it had to be set in America rather than Europe. It's not farm on the autobahn. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is American, and, and, it, and that's not his way at all. It sounds like the, it, interesting. It sounds like a kind of backing track to an American cop show. I love the flow of this song. It is brilliant lyrically. It's just brilliant. It makes you think in its simplicity. I also love it when the guitar kicks in again. This is a triumph, absolute triumph. Exactly what we were saying earlier. This is this is a bit Telegraph Roady, but. It's immense. The storytelling, the phrasing, the build and the ebb and flow of the song. I could listen to this forever. So just for for anyone who's not heard it, this is a a song about a farm that's been handed down through the generations and is, one assumes, compulsorily bought in order to build a motorway. And it's, it's really the lament about no amount of money can buy heritage and tradition and custom it is it's an absolutely beautiful song and yes it does sound a lot like telegraph road so track three uh on side one track three or four is little number called jump start which is oddly enough a, a political commentary on well getting fucked really by various well largely by margaret thatcher i think we can <laughs> so thing, can't we talking about the uh the whopping disputes and god knows what else but it couldn't be a happier little dissy, really, could it? This is genius part two. This is phenomenal. I love jumps. I absolutely adore it. I love that Zeppelin intro, that bar and on the acoustic guitar and Anderson with him on the flute. Pace picks up, bass guitar comes in, loads more flute, obviously. I just think it's kind of more bluesy, but it goes then goes into really clever hard rock. It's brilliantly sectioned. Oh, what a tap what what, what a foot tapper. Yeah, this is I guess the the first modern Jethro Tull song. I think the, the first two tracks were just so so different. This one, whether it's the flute, the flute's back in a fair you know fairly dominant role through it. But also, I feel the just the style of the song you'd have thought would have appeased some of the hardcore Jethro Tull fans. Obviously, not if you play this to anybody, they'd know who it is. Yeah, but I also think the melody is counterintuitive in the context of the lyrics because the lyrics are actually about oppression. Yeah, you know, and and, and um, conforming uh, and being forced to conform. So it's, there's a bit of a kind of a deliberate, I'm sure, disconnect between the melody and, and the lyric. I, I mean, I'll make no secret of the fact that, you know, it's very hard for me to identify a, a weak track on this album from my own personal view. So they all score highly, but then you wouldn't expect anything else, would you? However, Jumpstart pales into insignificance in terms of storytelling when we come to the final track on side one, which is Said She Was A Dancer which contains some of the most hilarious and also brilliantly constructed lyrics you'll ever hear anywhere, I would suggest, about a dalliance with a Russian, supposedly Russian dancer in a vodka bar. It was just, it's just beautiful. It's Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? <laughs> what? This is very nice. I'm not going to. I'm not going to comment on the lyrics because because you, you've done far more research than I have, and I'm sure it's a. I'm, well, listen, it's Ian Anderson. It's a given that it's going to be. Um, 
a really nice the fact that it's a song about a woman is actually quite a surprise in itself i do believe he didn't do it much didn't write songs no. the fairer sex that in itself fine i'll leave that one to you yeah this is okay so lyrics it, it was snowing outside and in her soul hey moscow what's your name if you don't want to stay, don't worry. It would probably be hard for me to make it scan. I just love that. Richard? Am I just the closest thing to an Englishman? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, it's pretty simple musically, but that it's the platform for him to tell this most amazing story about trying to, uh, feeling a bit lucky, picking up a, a gorgeous Russian woman in a bar. These last few lines, you know, I stole a kiss, it was a near miss. She looked at me like I was Jack the Ripper. She leaned in close. Good night, was all she said. So I took myself off to bed. The, yeah. the, the way this song ends as a, uh, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> yeah. So side one closes, four tracks, and we turn the record over. And we come to, well, just a piece of genius. This is called Budapest. It's about 10 minutes long. And normally I look at a 10 minute song, I think, Jesus Christ, this could better be bloody good. So according to Ian Anderson's stage banter, this song was created after the band met an interesting young lady when they played Budapest in 1986. She was athletic and pretty by all accounts, but she wasn't a groupie. She didn't let any mem any of the band members touch her at all, which I guess is where the lyric, she wouldn't make love, but she made good sandwich comes from. <laughs> He's very decent in his appreciation of her. I've, I read a quote. He said, um, it's all about respect in the lyrics. It's about look and don't touch to admire the physicality of someone. I'll, I'll carry on because I just think it's a great quote. It's absolutely not for taking advantage. In that sense, it's a respectful song, but some of the words and notions are rather deliberately rather sexist and erotic because I want people to think about the degree to which you can admire the human form, male or female, clothed or unclothed. This is what I did in art school when I was 17 and I was sitting in front of a naked woman drawing vaginas. <laughs> Welcome to the mind of Ian Anderson. First off, let's be clear, I think this song's brilliant, but it has got a whiff of dirty old man about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the lyrics, lyrics are I mean, again. It's an amazing story. His his uh, command of the English language is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, anyone listening, just get get this on Spotify, but get the lyrics up and just start reading through some of these stories because they're superb. And like you, Mark, this is ten minutes doesn't seem long on this track. No, there are a couple of tens. This is one of them. And if I had to choose one of the two, it would be this one. Wow, wow, wow. God, I haven't got it at that sort of um, august level by any stretch. It's the, it's the definitely the proggiest track on the album. I guess that's obvious. It's 10 minutes long. Um, it's quite, it is complex. I find it a little bit labour, a little bit, but, it, but that's nitpicking because it, it just flows delightfully. I was just going to say, there's a great sense of not quite knowing where it's all going to go as well. And I, who doesn't love that in a track anyway, especially when it's 10 minutes long? Just a little call out though, around four minutes, there's a bass bit that is private investigations. But apart from that, rest is fantastic. <laughs> so after the 10 minute piece of genius that is Budapest, we come to Mountain Men, track six of seven, a song that is about soldiers going off to war. It's about soldiers not coming back. It's about the futility of war. It's about how war is lived in the public eye. And it is an absolutely beautiful song, which reeks of the Highlands, which is obviously, you know, the homeland, Scotland's the homeland of Ian Anderson, even though he was working as a cinema cleaner at the Ritz in Luton when the band was formed. I just think, again, it's a, it's a marvellous piece of 
storytelling that because it's told indirectly we don't actually talk about soldiers we don't talk about death we don't it's all imagery and i think it's um it's an amazing piece of work what do you two think yeah i know i agree i absolutely agree with you yeah i do like i love that quite it's almost like a pink floyd start isn't it that sort of low that sort of low growly lyric I love it. I think this is um this is kind of almost classic tull, isn't it? Sort of electric folk with a story to tell, obviously. Yeah, and no, I think this is uh this is a, a really nice piece. This is a song of two halves for me, and in terms of the yeah, the, the musical style they use, and I love the sort of this yeah that lilt, the sway of the the first part, and then and there's a lovely break in the middle with this sort of flute and everything, and then it goes a bit more traditional rocky, and I really wish it had gone back to the stuff that was at the beginning. Good song, but would have been even better if they'd uh, interwoven, had a bit more of that that lovely, say that lovely swaying uh, melody at the start. It's got a lovely vocal hook hmm. through the chorus, this song. And so we come to the album closer, which is a little song called Raising Steam, which is um, it's about a train. It's about riding a train and being the engineer on a train. And not a lot more to say, really. It's it's probably the least lyrically inventive of the songs on the album. It's probably the least interesting in many ways on the album, I would say. Those Toll ne'er-do-wells tend to um, put this in the same bracket as Steel Monkey as the kind of song they don't want to hear on an album by their beloved band. And, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a rocker, and it? it settles down into a nice rhythm. There's a bit of an ACDC feel about that chord structure in there. But it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's okay. Certainly a more straightforward song, isn't it? Yeah, it's got the same sort of sequences, sort of, you know, used in a similar way to on the opening track. I mean, it's a solid closer, but um, doesn't live up to some of the other gems on the album. So there we are. That is Jethro Tull's Quest of a Nave. Highs and lows. Richard, let's start with you. Raising Steam gets the least highest mark, and Farm on the Freeway just nabs it from she says she was a dancer for me. Okay, Steve? No, you're going to hate me for this. I've got two sixes, just so that I don't have to say that one of them is she said she was a dancer. The low point is the other one, which is uh, raising steam. (laughs) But yeah, both sixes. Um, High points, yeah, I'm with Rich. Um, Jumpstart and Farm on the Freeway, very hard to separate, but Farm on the Freeway for me. Okay, so my low point actually was Jumpstart. Um, And when I say low, we're not talking low. I had a couple of tens on here, won't surprise anyone to find that Budapest is one of them. And the other one is said she was a dancer. So there you go. We couldn't be further apart, you and me, Steve. On no, that, but no, not the first time. Not for the first time. It won't be the last, I'm sure. Um, so there you go. Jethro Tull, Christopher Nave, done and dusted. It's time to move on. And we're heading from, well, the highlands of Scotland to the highlands of Switzerland, no less, with Crocus's 1988 album, Heart Attack. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah. Heavy petal, as it was known, wasn't it? Crocus. <laughs> um, or the ACDC, Judas Priest, Def Leppard Tribute Band, whatever you want to call them. This is Crocus, their 10th album, Heart Attack, and a classic case of never go back because um, they shouldn't have done this one. I'm glad they did because it's bloody brilliant, 
but um, this was a band at the, at the end of their tether. Kind of disappointed they hadn't done this two or three years earlier. They might have carried on in the same vein. Um, but they were at breaking point, and this was pretty much as good as it got. So this is Heart Attack five years after Headhunter, which we all know was you know probably their last great album. Um, I think they did two great albums. I think Metal Rendezvous and and Headhunter. I think they're the ones that are generally accepted to be. Um, the finest examples of the crocus genre and this one i tell you what it's 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 up there with it i think it's a i think it's a fantastic piece of work it was released on march 25th 1988 on mca 47 minutes long it was produced by two of the band members fernando von Arp and founding member chris van roer recorded at the pinkton studios in switzerland the band was bon scott sound alike i mean uh, let's just get it said mark Staracci on vocals, Fernando Von Arba, as I say, on lead guitar, Chris Van Roer, as I say, on bass, Mark Curler was the rhythm guitarist, and Danny Crivelli, who I know very little about. Well, scrap that, I know nothing about, other than he's a bloody good drummer, and it was the only album he appeared on, um, and he was the driving force behind this thing. It charted, well, it did chart, it made the top 100 in America, um, it reached number 87, I don't know how many sales it did, but um, it's a classic 10 track of five on each side. And yeah, I think let's not pretend this is anything other than a good metal band, utterly unoriginal, but very, very decent. It's hugely derivative. And I just think it's a brilliant piece of music. I just think there's so many good songs on here. Nothing I haven't heard before is done by the bands. They've just decided to put it all on the one album, and I commend them massively for that. Where I say that it shouldn't have happened, that it had all gone wrong after Headhunter, which is a couple of years, about five years before. They'd fired the original member, Chris Van Roer, over, well, fuck all, it seemed. It was an interview that they didn't like. Um, but this was a band on the edge. They were white lining. They were just, they were just gone. Um, and it also became clear that Arista wanted to take them in a different direction. So they wound up making two massive mistake albums called The Blitz and then Change of Address. They were critically panned. The band hated them. So they upped and left, went to MCA, came up with this. Chris Van Von Roer returned, despite the fact that there was still plenty of, you know, ill feeling between them. So you can reunite the team, but you can never quite get the magic back. And this just, Starachi says that the ship had sailed long before, never felt felt quite right. The music had moved on. In hindsight, they should have called it a day after Headhunter, but they didn't. And to that end... I'm quite grateful because I think this is fine, um, but I don't think we'll ever pretend that Crocus were anything other than a mid-European, decent metal band, purveyor of good tunes and nice, good fun to listen to. That's my takeaway from this. What do you guys think? After uh, it, Mark and my dalliances with the folk and prog and wherever we've gone this week, we could just rely on you, Steve, for some late 80s proper hard rock and roll. And hats off to you for that. Good choice. It's good fun. It's good head-nodding, head-banging fun. Yep, all of the above. I was slightly nervous, actually, when you came up with Crocus, because although Metal Rendezvous and Headhunter are definitely seen as the sort of the seminal albums from from Crocus back in the day, I I didn't much care for either of them, I have to say. Uh, I've, I've considered them for previous episodes of this podcast. You know, take them for what they are, which is just a good, fun rock and roll band. You're not going to be made to think about world poverty or, you know, famine in Africa or anything like that. This is just literally, I put it on and 10 out, ten tracks later, I was still smiling. And I think at the end of the day, that's how I've judged it. It has been a really rollicking, good, fun album to listen to. 
Well, th- those are the two takeaways we'll get from this album. Um, nothing memorable and pleasantly surprised. And I think that pretty much sums it, <laughs> sums up Crocus's career and Heart Attack specifically. Um, should we give it a listen? So as I say, five tracks per side on uh, Heart Attack. And side one kicks off with Everybody Rocks. Or, and I'll say it just to stop, stop you saying it, Rock Rock till you drop. Let's make one thing very clear as we begin our review of this album. Crocus are not reinventing the rock wheel here. This album, as I've mentioned before, is unoriginal and it's derivative. And we kick off with just a classic piece of Def Leppard to start. Um, and they're going through a and they're going through a catalogue of bands they respected and loved and wanted to copy and were off and running. And Mutt Lang didn't produce this, but he may as well have done, because it even sounds like it's produced by Def Leppard. I mean, it really does. Anyway, I love Rock Rock Till You Drop, and therefore I really like this. I'd probably like it more had I heard it before the Leps original. But anyway, no matter. I like this more than I like Rock Rock Till You Drop. <laughs> I had a big shit-eating grin on my face at the end of this. I'll tell you, I love it. I, I don't care. I don't care that it's derivative. I don't, honestly, most of the time I'm really dismissive of albums that are appear to be sort of sound-alikes of something else. These guys are unashamed. They they had an absolute reputation for being ACDC clones yeah. back in the early 80s. Um, we'll get to ACDC a bit later on, twice. If they want to do Def Leppard and they're going to do it as well as this, go ahead and do it, because I'm there, quite happy. Yeah, in agreement. This is, this is a really good head-nodding belter of a start to an album. I can't stop smiling. I just love it. <laughs> the great thing is they had a they had a massive falling out with Def Leppard as well, having um, having painstakingly emulated them. They were touring with them in the States, weren't they? And um, Def Leppard kicked them off the tour. Starachi, apparently, was nicking Joe Elliott's raps and using them the following night. And, of course, because he was on first, all the Def Leppard bands were thinking, well, why is fucking Joe Elliott copying what the first bloke was saying? And he just nicked it from the previous night. And Elliott, being very precious, was furious. And also, they were also using parts of their rig as well. And the Leopard management said, no, you can't go using that. And because these boys were so out of control, they were saying, oh, fuck that, we're going to. Anyway, they just kicked off the tour. There you go. Another another side story about Crocus. My admiration for them has just gone up a notch. Yeah, they wound up Joe Elliott. Good for them. Yeah. And then, well, we, we Wasp now, I don't know. This is wild love anyway. There's, um, just pick your band. This just rocks. <laughs> this just rocks. It's another really, really sensational track. I really, really like it. All the keyboards, by the way, that were all over the Blitz and Change of Address, they pretty much vanish now. So, um, you know, we're back to doing what we do best. And it's tracks like Wild Love. Or Wild Child, as I've been referring to it all week. Yeah. You like it, though, surely. You like Wild Child. Absolutely love it. I, I think I sent a WhatsApp going, I'm awestruck by it. And I just hope they don't slip up. And they don't really. That's no. the thing. They don't really slip up. Yeah, it gets more and more derivative as the album goes on. And you pick up more and more references. None, none of them die straights, by the way. Yeah, I, this just rocks along like a bastard. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Really steams along, doesn't it? I, 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 not quite as good as the opener for me, but it, yeah, it charges along nicely. Um, yeah, and we're still charging along with Let It Go, which, uh, again, I like this a lot, an awful lot. Actually, um, really solid riff, some some bridges and a chorus that are very pleasant on the and I mean pleasant on the ear because it's there's there's some good melody in there as well. Um, it's that kind of mid pace 
uh, mid-weight rocker that they just get right. They've got a beat and a rhythm, and they and they repeat, and it and it works. I mean that mid-paced rocker like rock you like a hurricane. Yes. And they, they are, of course, massive Scorpion fans, but no one would be surprised by that. This wasn't their original kind of music. I don't know whether you've listened, Mark, to some of their late 70s albums. They were very sort of messy, proggy, didn't quite know where they were. Um, but once they started nicking other people's clothes, they, they found <laughs> they found a niche and, and do it very well. I just got a flash of malice as well in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just keep ticking them off. In fact, this could be the longest list of other bands on one album that we've ever had and we're normally good at that and we we can normally find them and they're just flying off the page (laughs) track four on side one we've got someone having a pee and some bells into some harmonic guitar and this is winning man a track that was originally on their hardware album of 1981 and the nuts and bolts of the two tracks really aren't enormously different um in fact if you listen to one you do think you're getting the other this one's perhaps a little bit more metal as it goes on a, a, a good number a little middle section into a guitar solo that bears pretty much no relation to the first half of the song but this is okay good you know there's nothing wrong with it yeah it's, I mean, it's a lot more atmospheric isn't it this i've dialed it back a bit not bad track four it's it's the most original track. Struggle to find the references to other bands in this. What you do get, you, you get an appreciation of um, of Strach's singing power. I mean, he's a great singer. I mean, you so yeah. like. I mean, what a rock yeah. voice. Um, and we close side one with Axe Attack. Axe, obviously spelt A-X-X, because this is Swiss heavy metal. And we're back on full throttle for the side one closer. This is Accept. In feel and tempo, um, and I love it. And I also, it's terrific fun. And it's a yeah, this is a this is a proper way to close out side one. Fast as a shark, anybody? I'm not I'm not so keen on this one. I have to say, it's too fast for them. It does seem a little out of keeping with the rest of side one, doesn't it? Maybe they're just demonstrating their originality that I've accused them of not having. But I don't know. Yes. And and Sturridge is is stretching a bit on this as well, isn't he? He can just about get away with it. They were reborn when Sturridge became their lead singer. Did you ever have? Do you remember the Nawabum sampler, Metal for Mothers? Yeah. Because there was a band on there called Easy Money. Yeah. That was him. No, really? That was Starachi, yeah. Yeah, he'd moved from Malta to London. He was working, he was doing that. And by day, apparently, he had a steady job announcing flights at Gatwick Airport. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you'd, listen, you'd, you'd sit there just waiting for the you'd, you'd be delighted, wouldn't you? I've got to say Johannesburg. Go on, Mark. <laughs> yeah. I presume that he used this style when it was last call, did he? <laughs> yeah. So... I'm getting a bit of motorhead now. Yeah, they've been through the full gamut on side one. I think it's um yeah, no, I'm with Rich on this. It's not um yeah, it's not it's not a highlight, but it's still a it's still a good song, still a good track. Yeah. Should we turn this baby over? Let's. Okay. Side two kicks off with rock and roll tonight, and um the the, the one man we've not mentioned, well we probably have actually. Starachi sounds like more than anyone else is Bon Scott and I mean this is an ACDC track it's also fucking good I mean in terms of originality what one out of ten <laughs> but I'm not marking it I'm not marking it for originality because it's it is I love it you could just lift this off this album put it onto Highway to Hell and it, it wouldn't sound out of place is it <laughs> Yeah, they took a lot of shit in the early years for being ACDC soundlikes. There was a point where it seemed like every article about them that I read was about how they were ripping off ACDC sound. 
I have absolutely no problem with it. I think if you can do it this well, fair play to you, because they are absolutely bang on it for this. <laughs> My description of this song is Bon Scott does Addicted to Love. Yes. There was apparently history between ACDC and Craig's. I'd heard that Starachi was on the shortlist to replace Bon, and that would have made sense. I get that entirely. And um, apparently wasn't interested or turned them down. When ACDC, ACDC vetoed having them on Monsters of Rock in 81 at Donington, because, well, for obvious reasons, you don't want to be upstage too soon. And, well, you know, you knew what you were up against. Why run the risk? But the best story of them all, it's just fantastic. When they were doing For Those About To, Those About to Rock, We Salute You, Crocus were doing an album called One Vice At A Time, and they overlapped studio-wise. If you haven't listened to One Vice At A Time, Stick on, long stick goes boom, the opening track. It is the it is the one track that ACDC never wrote. It is just so, so it's beyond, it's almost beyond ACDC. There's a virtual ACDC circle. It's gone round and it's overlapped at the top. You could see why ACDC just thought, these fucking, God, they just piss off. You know, they're just getting on our nerves. I think it's a great story. It's, it's well worth a listen. I recommend it to anyone. It's a really, if you love ACDC, listen to Crocus. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And I've not actually put a comparison on it. So if you boys have got any, that's fine. This is flying high. Well, I, I just think this is a, I've got this down as just a great driving song made by the chorus. I absolutely love the chorus and a, and a fantastic big finish. This is, this is a big scorer for me. Yeah, me too. I love the chorus. I haven't got any comparisons either. I just think it's a really, really good song. No comparisons for me either for this one. I didn't do so much for me, this song. It is what those kind of open top car, long straight road songs, isn't it? You can imagine. Um, and the midpoint on side two is Shoot Down the Night, where we have the intro to Night Prowler. Um, yet more Bon Scott vocals and yet another fantastic rock song. I was going to mention Danny Crivelli here as well, the drummer, but I've already said what I think of him and I wish I knew more about him. I know he's dead, sadly. I thought he was fantastic on this album. This has even got that ACDC backbeat behind Fernando Von Arb's, um guitar solo. I love it. I love it. This is a really good song. Pick a side two for me. Good fun, relentless, fast-paced. What is it? Is it Riff Raff? I'm trying to think what it's yeah. not about. It's not crowd. It isn't it. It's not. It's riff raff. It's heat seeker. There, there are about nine different songs, (laughs) but they blend them perfectly. Mm. But it's mainly riff raff. I think (laughs) it's great. It's great. (laughs) And so to bad bad girl, and I can't, I can't think of anything from ACDC's back catalogue. So you're gonna have to help me out if you've got it because I have. No, it's not ACDC. It's It's another band. It is a song for you. <laughs> yeah. This is Crying in the Rain from Saints and Sinners. <laughs> it absolutely is. It is yeah. I, have sung, I have sung this chorus to this song, and it works perfectly. He even goes Coverdale later on in the song, doesn't he? He even, he even changes his voice. It is. It's Crying in the Rain. <laughs> There's even a girl in the heart of the city. There's a girl... In the heart of the city. Unbelievable. Do you like it? Do you like it because of it, in spite of it, or do you not like it? I'm sold on this experience. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, these people are geniuses because they have managed to take every band I love (laughs) and do it really well. Yeah. So, you know. It's true. (laughs) This in particular is ridiculously similar. I think this wins the award for the 
sort of songs, song structure, chords, everything, biggest rip-off of the album. <laughs> <laughs> right up until the point where you get to the next track. Surely. Should we do it? And their final piece of derivative work is Speed Up. We Rock. Now, if you grab the lyrics to We Rock and you just <laughs> sing along in your head, every single element works. It is exactly the same song, but lyrics, <laughs> it is. Even down to that progression, that yeah. kind of progression. But it's not a bad closer. It's a pretty good... Yeah, farewell. Thank you very much. I agree. Any a, a good galloping finish. Yeah, but I love it. I love speed up. I think I prefer it to wee rock. And it does what it says on the tin. It does speed up. So there you have it. <laughs> That's been fun. Crocus's heart attack. A lot of fun. But we need some highs and lows, girls. Richard, my low would be flying high, and I'm going to have to give my high to the opening track. It's a Proper good old head nodder and uh, puts a massive smile on your face. So first of all, Steve, thank you. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun listening to this this week. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, my low is Axe Attack. I just It does absolutely nothing for me. I've given, th- I think, three tens tonight and everybody rocks, gets a ten just because of the smile on my face every time I listen to it. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. That's astonishing. Yeah. Well, to, to an illustration of the consistency, I've got everything here marked between 7.5 and 8.5. So that's where I am, because that's kind of how I see this album. So it's hard to pick a low and a high. Um, probably Winning Man the low, and yeah, Everybody Rocks, or um, Rock and Roll Tonight for me, for the highs. So there you have it. Part three off three, Crocus's Heart Attack. We better get down and um, put some scores on these three albums and see where we're going to shove them in uh, the Enter Sadman Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so we have scored these three albums, the three that have made up this episode 31, Leaders of the Pack, Queen by Queen, Crest of a Knave by Jethro Tull, and Heart Attack by Crocus. So let's go with me first. And so how did Queen do? Uh, So their first album, uh, Steve gave a 7.1. Mark, uh, near an 8.1, and I gave it a 7.72, and that gave the Queen's debut an overall score of 7.63 or so. Mark, how did Jethro Tull fare? Uh, Very well, actually. Um, Better than I perhaps thought they might. So, Steve, you gave it a 7.43. Richard, you gave it, uh, you you liked it a bit more than that, you gave it a 7.85. Uh, and I, well, no surprise really, um, given it is in my top, certainly my top 10, I scored it at an 8.87, so an 8.9 virtually, to give it an overall average score of 8.05238. Steve, how did Crocus do? You've had a good week, Mark, haven't you? Yeah, I've had a great week. You, there's a fanboy frenzy going on here. Yeah. So to Crocus and Heart Attack, Richard gave it 6.9. I gave it 7.8, and Mark, again, he's loved his three albums. He's given this one 8.06, so Crocus's Heart Attack winds up with a total of 7.58667. And I suggest we go over to the uh, Hall of Fame and see where these three are. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. 
opening the Hall of Fame. So we are we are here at the Hall of Fame where we now have 93 albums in. And um, it's funny, isn't it? You get your sort of preconceptions of a week and you think, well, that'll be a kind of okay week. We'll see a bit of a split opinion and that won't do so well. This won't do so well. I didn't think I'd be looking into the top 40 for all three of these. Having listened to them, get it fully. So as I say, yeah, top 40 just in Crocus's case with heart attacks in at number 40 um, with 7.58. Two places better off is Queen's debut album with 7.62. And the pick of the three is Christopher Nay, Jethro Tull, at number 16 with 8.05. Just to put that into context, because we have done a Tull album before, Aqualung, which I loved, is number 57. So there you have it. What do you make of that? Well, do you know what? The question that immediately springs to my mind is, I can't wait until we do And Justice For All. To see whether the Grammys were actually right. <laughs> Maybe they too marked these albums on consistency. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I said that I thought Crocus might do quite well. I, I had no idea what my overall average score for the album would be um, when I said that. But I, I, I thought they would do all right because it was a bloody consistent album. And interestingly, that also raises the question, doesn't it? it is if Queen had been less experimental well if they'd been less experimental arguably they wouldn't have become the band they did but for the purposes of this standalone album if they'd been less experimental i think that would have been up way up there as well so interesting mm. that is very i'll tell you what following up that point jethro tull if there's one if there's one word you probably think you wouldn't use with jethro tull it's consistency just because of the very nature of the kind of band they are and the music they are and you look at the kind of the top 20 the bands we've got, you look at all the albums we've got, they're just mega consistent. And Jethro Tull's in amongst those with Crest of a Neighbor, which it wasn't anywhere near with Aqualung. I know you gave it a couple of tens, which doesn't have, you know, give it a kickstart. That's quite something, isn't it? When it's, you know, it's trailing so close to the weight in the likes of, you know, Women and Children First and Let There Be Rock and Escape and Lightning to the Nations, all these really sort of consistent albums. And it's, a, it's a, you know, Nat's testicle away from those. And you wouldn't have Jethro Tull down as that kind of band. I think with the Queen album, it's got some weaker moments, but I would say as a piece of music history, I wouldn't change a thing. No, and I completely second that. Um, I, I think it, I think it's magical because of because of its sort of the highways and byways and alleyways that it goes down. And I think you know it. If you if you have any regard for Queen, the band that we came to know and love, then you will have an enormous amount of fun listening to their debut album and trying to spot where the seeds of everything are planted. Because there's absolutely no doubt you can hear that band, that massive mega stadium band. You can hear that in every song somewhere, and that that's been the joy of that album for me. And, it, and in some ways. It's the album I've enjoyed listening to most this week. Yeah, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable week. And I can't wait to see what we've got in store. Um, it's been a blast. Um, three absolutely stonkingly good albums for different reasons. Um, but that is the end of episode 31. We'll be back soon with episode 32 and another three albums to review, rate, and then rank in the ever-growing Hall of Fame, not far now to the top 100, and then bands will start to fall out or albums will start to fall out of the top 100, and that's going to be almost as interesting as what stays in. We'll see you next week. 
all music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.